This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. The legacy of the slave family haunts the status of black people in America today. For that history, we turn to Brenda Stevenson. She's the Hillary Rodham Clinton Chair of Women's History at Oxford and the Nickel Family Endowed Chair of History at UCLA. She's best known for the prize-winning book, The Contested Murder of Latasha Harlins, Justice, Gender, and the Origins of the L.A. Riots. We talked about that here. Her new book is What Sorrows Labor in My Parents' Breast, A History of the Enslaved Black Family. One more thing, President Biden named her to serve on the Civil Rights Cold Case Review Board, which examines unsolved murders of African-Americans between 1940 and 1979. She testified before the Senate Homeland Security Committee in 2020 and was then confirmed by voice vote in the Senate. We reached her today in Oxford, England. Brenda Stevenson, welcome back. Thank you so much, John. It's great to be back. Well, let's talk first about the Civil Rights Cold Case Review Board. What can you tell us about that work? Well, that work is just really taking off right now. It takes a long time to set up a committee to get the staffing. And so what we'll be looking at um, initially are cases that have already been digitized by the National Archives. There are more than 100. We'll have our researchers, we'll have our chief of staff, our attorney. And are all of these cases ones that were investigated by the FBI originally? They were investiga investigated, um, both some of them on a state level, some of them on a local level, but most of them uh, are being were investigated by um, the FBI, the Department of Justice. Your new book on the enslaved Black family includes dozens of wonderful photos and illustrations. The first one is not of enslaved people. It's the official Obama family portrait, Barack and Michelle and Sasha and Malia in 2011, looking fabulous. A family to emulate, if not envy, you write. Let's talk about that picture and what we know about the previous generation behind it. I wanted to start with an important Black family. I wanted people to see what was a landmark in terms of our ideas about Black family in the United States. And what better family than that of the first family? And Obama's own family background includes a lot of what has been regarded by a lot of mainstream social science as pathologies. Exactly. We look at President Obama's family of birth and we look at his mother and his father and his father was married to someone else at the time that he married, purportedly married um, Obama's mother. And he, of course, was an absentee father for most of President Obama's young life. His grandparents raised him um, to a certain extent. And he also, his mother remarried um, too. So he had stepfather and step siblings. Um, there's nothing wrong with any of that, of course. And so for people that pointed that out as being very negative, his mother sometimes was on federal assistance. And so that hasn't kept him from becoming the first black president of the United States and having a beautiful family with, a, as I say, double Ivy wife, you know, a daughter who's now graduated from Harvard and another who just graduated from USC and so on, all their wonderful accomplishments. And the next photo in your book is from 1974, 
a black woman named Linda Taylor made infamous by Ronald Reagan as the quote, welfare queen. Yes, that notion of black women as being welfare queens, as being lazy, as not caring about their children, as not taking care of their children, um, has been used by social scientists, by politicians, by, you know, the everyday person on the street, by the ways in which people interact with black children in schools um, and also in our policing institutions, for example, to harm black people. And so it's important that we, you know, we look at that myth and see where it really comes from, uh, what validity there is with it, um, et cetera. So your approach is to examine the ways that enslaved Africans and their descendants defined kinship themselves, the ways they experienced it, the way they valued it, the way they maintained it. You start your story in 1850 with a woman enslaved in Virginia named Bethany Vaney. What did you learn about her and, and how did you learn it? Bethany Vini is just one of many, many people who wrote their stories or who had some assistance in writing their stories. And what's captured in these stories is the importance of family. And these people live through all kinds of difficulties. Family members are sold away. Family members are killed. They're sold away. You know, um, they don't have appropriate food or clothing or, or any of those kinds of things they can never think that they would live together with the family or with the husband for the remainder of their lives, um, et cetera. But family still is at the core and the center for this woman, Bethany Vini, she's able to, to get away and she's able to claim her freedom. She takes her son with her. Her son unfortunately dies. But after the Civil War, she goes back to Virginia and she gathers up the remnants of her family and she takes them to the Northeast and they live out the remainder of their lives in a new space that's not defined by enslavement for them and in which they can begin to function as a real family connected to one another, living close to one another, visiting, helping, loving, et cetera. And so I did want to start with a family where there was hardship, but there also was some success at the end. And then you turn to a very different figure, a man named Abdul Rahman Ibrahima Ibn Sori. Amazing name and an amazing person. <laughs> Tell us about him. Well, he was an Islamic man who had been captured and enslaved, and he worked very hard to gain his freedom. He was enslaved for several years, had remarried in the United States to an enslaved woman. They had several children. He never stopped trying to gain his freedom and the freedom for his family. And eventually, he is able to gain his freedom with, you know, very miraculous conditions. And he goes back to, to Africa um, with some of them, and he lives out this dream. So this is another story of a person who just never gave up on having his family free. To understand how enslaved people thought about their own families, we need to understand marriage in the family in West Central Africa at the time of the Atlantic slave trade, a big topic. But tell us briefly what we need to know about the African background of this. Well, one of the things that I think is really important to understand is that while there are many, many, many ethnicities and, and different language groups that are fed into the Atlantic slave trade that end up 
in what becomes the United States of America. There are certain clusters of these people who come from, you know, places like the Senegambia region, who come from Congo, Angola, who come from uh, what is now Nigeria, um, Cameroon, Guinea, etc. And these people differ substantially in terms of their culture. Some are Islamic in faith. Some of them are have already been Christianized. Some of them have, of course, traditional African religions as well. And they also have different kinds of marital styles. Some are polygamous. Some are, you know, monogamous. Some are uh, patrilineal. Some are matrilineal. There's a great diversity, but among every single group, there is an emphasis on family relations, on kinship, on the importance, how you are defined by your family. And that is not lost in the middle passage. And that's not lost in the seasoning process. Oftentimes people say black people have no culture. They lost all their culture, you know, um, in the slave trade. They lost all their culture in middle passage. There were so many different groups, nothing stuck. That is absolutely not true. And one of the things that absolutely stuck was the value no matter how expressed in terms of day-to-day -day life, but the value of kinship, the value of family, and how that was how one defined oneself. Of course, family life for enslaved people was often devastating, especially in that period when the slave economy shifted from the Upper South to the Lower South and Southwest in the decades uh, before the Civil War. Hundreds of thousands of people lost husbands, wives, sons, and daughters as they were sold. Maybe the worst part was women forced to leave their children. You have some stories of acts of desperation by some who hope to save their families. From the colonial period, you know, we find over and over and over again in what were called fugitive slave advertisements, the attempts by enslaved people, men, as well as women, to escape with their families. Um, as families are formed, um, that is, people marry and have children, we see specifically this one ran away with her infant. This one ran away to get back to his wife. This one ran away, you know, in order to try to get back to Jamaica because they have family in Jamaica. These kinds of efforts of resistance speak not only to the absolute desire to be reconnected with family, to protect family, but also how families are just across the Atlantic world. I mean, there are people who have, you know, siblings who are in Jamaica or in Barbados, for example, they lose complete connection with them at the time of the American Revolution. We have people in Florida who have, uh, have families in Cuba, of course. It speaks not only to this desire for family members to be together, but also how flung across the world these families were. And of course, there's always, as Phyllis Wheatley alludes to uh, in the title to this book, the family that one never regains, which is the family in Africa. The last of your stories of the Black family within and outside of slavery is about a man named Bob Samuels, a guy with an amazing memory who told the incredible story of his family in 1936. Uh, we need to talk, first of all, about where you found the story of Bob Samuels and how come we have that story today? Well, I found that story in the WPA narratives. And of course, the WPA narratives were collected in the 1930s 
for generations and generations of scholars, historians would not use these narratives because they spoke to the last generations of enslaved people. These were elderly people. So many decades had passed before, you know, people were trying to get these stories out of them. They come as a part of the relief for the Great Depression. These people were employed to, to, to really record American history, um, to give these writers and these, you know, teachers, et cetera, who were out of work during the Great Depression a job. I was reading through them again because I try to read them, all of them, every few years. But I had known about Bob Samuels for a while. His story seemed so incredible. I was reluctant to use it. And I actually spoke to other historians about it. And they said, oh, no, this can't be. This, this doesn't make any sense. But the more and more, as I got to the end of the book, and I had read so many accounts uh, from all different kinds of sources, I thought, I'm going to give this source a chance. I'm going to put it out there and I am going to see what people think about it because it is incredible, but also surviving enslavement is incredible. The dedication of the book is for the African girl sold from Virginia to South Carolina and all her kin. Well, I'm one of those kin. Mm. And this is my mother's story that she passed to me, that her grandmother passed to her, not about a person in her grand and that um in her grandmother's line, but in her father's line. I would ask my mother, who grew up on a, a what used to be a plantation in South Carolina. You know, what do you know about a family? This is as a small child. She says there was an African girl sold from Virginia to South Carolina. Wow. And that's where some of your family come from. And so, you know, this was so many generations ago that this story traveled across my family. We only had that little bit of it. But Bob Samuels talks about how his mother and his grandmother would tell him repeatedly their story. So what is this incredible story? It is that his ancestors were with Hernando de Soto in the 16th century. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. And, and they came over as part of de Soto's effort to find gold, gold that had been found in Mexico, the, the precious metals that had been found in Peru. And he had been assigned as the governor of Cuba but before he wanted to do that, he wanted to say, I, I need to go back one more time and try to find this gold. And he took this whole cluster of people with them, hundreds and hundreds of people with him. And some of them were of African descent. And Bob Samuels believed that two of these people were his ancestors. And now, indeed, let me just interrupt here and say, I like many people thought, how could how could this actually be right? But you have read here in your footnotes, you've been reading like the Journal of Southeast Archaeology about DeSoto's travels looking for gold in Arkansas, which is where Bob Samuels lived and was telling the story to the WPA project in 1936. He knew the rivers, he knew the valleys, he knew the whole landscape of where DeSoto had traveled. And not only in Arkansas, but also in Louisiana and in Texas and in Florida. His grandmother and then his mother, these people were not people who had been educated, you know. I mean, they didn't read a geography book, they didn't read a history book about Hernando DeSoto. This came from their experiences and what had been passed down orally and with these documents from generation to generation to generation. So DeSoto, of course, dies in the, in the lower south 
of the United States. We're not sure exactly where he does die. His forces and all the people working for him scatter. And then Bob's family, I believe they, they go back to Cuba and then from there back to Spain. But generations later, they return to Cuba and then they come up with the maps that their ancestors have passed down to them and start again this quest to find this gold. Wrong place, wrong time. Yet again, they are enslaved and then his mother is born and he's born, et cetera. And it just, the story passes on and on and on to his And he family. can name all of these people. All of he these can answers. name all of these people. He absolutely can. And um, he can point it, you know, if you showed him a map, he could point it out on the map. And he just kept telling it over and over and over again until finally somebody, I guess the WPA people were looking for people who had, you know, stories of their families. And this woman heard about him. And it's an it's amazing funny. story. Finally, your title what sorrows labor in my parents breast tell us about that this is a line from phyllis wheatley poem written at the end of the 18th century you know oftentimes phyllis wheatley who is a just a phenomenal person but she's often sort of thought of as an assimilationist and she's also thought of as a person who became so embedded in colonial british or american culture that she didn't have very much reference to her her home. Well, she, of course, she was enslaved as a child, as a small child, and then she was taught, you know, English and various other, uh, you know, Western languages, etc. But we do see few glimpses of her memory of her past, knowing that she had a family. I mean, that's one of the few things that she kept, that she had a family, and she knew that her family loved her, and that they would be mourning her. So she says, what sorrows labor in my parents' breasts? She doesn't know, but she knows that it is sorrowful, that it is an enormous loss for them and an enormous loss for her. So despite centuries of slavery and systematized inequality, Black people were able to create family ties that fostered humanity, assured survival, and undergirded post-emancipation progress across the generations. Brenda Stevenson's new book is What Sorrows Labor in My Parents' Breast, A History of the Enslaved Black Family. Brenda, thanks for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John, for this opportunity. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.